and we're very, very pleased to welcome Mark Smith, um, from, all the way from Anglesey. He's talking to Alan Stockwell. Um, you're up to your fourth novel, Mark. That's right. And he's, uh, he has one of his titles on Australian book lists already, and this one is probably likely to end up on a book list mm -hmm. as well. So I'll leave you to Doc. Yep. Thank you all for coming. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Um, before I begin anything at all, um, huge congratulations to Joe and Dean for being open again and yeah. hosting events again. It's um, it's such a great thing for all of us, yeah. you know, as an audience and, and as writers and yeah, and the town. So here's to that. Um, yeah. um, we are, of course, on the land of the Gunditjmara and Peakwarrung people of the Eastern Ma Nation. So we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. Um, and who are the mob where you are, like in Anglesey? Wadharong. Ah, right, okay, Wadharong. Um, and uh, otherwise, uh, do you need to know about exits and toilets? You don't, of course, you're all very familiar with the building. <laughs> um, so, to introduce you to Mark, Mark, um, as Joe just said, Mark lives and works in Anglesey. Um, his work, to me, is very much infused with those beautiful heathlands of the Great Ocean Road um, and the forests of the Otways. They're, they're, they're a a salient feature in everything you do, really, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. Um, he's released The Road to Winter, which was the first of his young adult novels in 2016. Um, then uh, Wilder Country was the second of those in 2017, um, which was the indie book of the year yeah. for young adult that year, or the, the following year. That year, yep. Yep. Um, and then Land of Fences closed out that trilogy for young adults in 2019. Um, it's a trilogy for... it's. it's I think it's billed as being for 14 and over, isn't it? But I reckon you could go younger. 14 to 94. <laughs> <laughs> um, about a kid called Finn and his dog called Rowdy and the things that they get up to in a landscape which is, is very recognisably Anglesey and Aries Inlet and the Great Ocean Road, but after a pandemic has wiped everybody out. And um, the thing I always say I love about that is that Mark is a surfer and the very thing that comes to the surface is the idea that if everybody was gone, you could surf all these places <laughs> by yourself. <laughs> um, so there's that. Um, and the, the bad guys in the trilogy um, are called the Wilders, and they're a little bit like Tolkien's orcs, or somewhere between the orcs and perhaps bikies. They're a very scary bunch of bad guys. Um, so Mark and I are both with Pex Publishing, which is how we sort of got to know each other, and also through Great Ocean Quarterly, I yep. guess. Yep. Um, you had a long career as a teacher along the way. Are you still teaching? No. Okay. No. Well, I, I go into schools a lot because my books are taught in schools. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's the best kind of teaching because you walk in, you do your gig, and you walk out. It's like being a grandparent. Yeah, it is. It's great. <laughs> Hand them back. Um, yeah, and, and so the books are, as Joe indicated, very widely taught in schools. Can you explain what does it mean to be on the book list or on the curriculum? Is that a formal thing? Uh, no, it's not a formal thing, and it's very difficult. Um, there's a lot of competition for it, obviously, but it, it is um, it's something that you you realise that that the publisher does for you because the publisher takes your manuscript and they find the spot in the market for it. And they, their spot for with the Winter Trilogy was they saw a, a gap in the market, um, and they were right. They um, so it's principally taught at. It's taught all around the country in years sort of nine, eight, nine, ten. Um, so 14 to 16-year-olds, um, which is, when you think about it, it's an incredibly impressionable age. Um, and so it's a great 
time to be getting your novels to kids. Yep, yep. And so it's meant, hasn't it, that you're spending a lot of your time on planes going to other mm. cities, talking yeah. to schools. And yep. yeah. yeah. Planes? Are they? <laughs> I can't remember what they were, um, but yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a foot in the door to a lot of to a lot of schools, um, and it is, you know, it's. Um, I, I hate sort of talking. It's not it's not a book for boys, but it's a book that works well for boys in particular because it has a male protagonist. Um, so I do tend tend to get a lot of work in boys' schools. Um, and obviously in co-ed schools, the books on curriculum in single-sex schools as well, in girls' schools, so it's, yeah. it's across the board, um, but it does find, you know, when you have a, a boy protagonist who's yeah. a 16-year-old boy, um, it tells a particular story in a particular way, yeah. uh, and that is, that's the foot in the door to lots of schools, but it also means that you can then run writing workshops on top of your um, work with the school on the text as well. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting what you say about boys because one of the things that really comes through for me is I would never write young adult because I don't have any confidence that I could speak accurately to and about teenagers mm. but you seem to have great insight into how they operate. Probably if there's any teachers in the room you'd know you'd know exactly <laughs> what that's like because um, my, my the last 18 years of my teaching career was was working entirely with 15 year old boys 14, 15 year old boys in a residential campus for year nines. Um, so that was a lot of, I think, I think teenage boys get a bad rap. I really do. Um, and so I try to, in, to rectify some of those stereotypes in the books that I write. And, um, and it was incredible insight into, it's just the, the chance to observe them, the chance to observe boys operating with each other. And there's this thing about, oh, they're monosyllabic and they never talk. And no, you look at, that's only, that's only when adults are around. When they're with each other and you see the way that they communicate with each other and they communicate with their bodies and they grab each other's arms and they're talking and it's like, and that's... So how do you know? Have you got them under surveillance? <laughs> you, you, well, you do have to, if you're a teacher, you do have to actually supervise. I right. don't know whether you... <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so you watch, you learn. Yeah. Uh, and the characters in my books are like these amalgamations of so many of these boys that I've, that I've worked with over yeah. the years. And girls as well, because I've taught in co-ed schools as well. Well, it's really interesting. Uh, I've seen a difference in my family that um, my 14-year-old son has read all of your books and loved them. My 11-year-old daughter hadn't, and we started with If Not Us. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to me that the distinct difference here is the love interest, that she was absolutely fascinated with. And it was embarrassing, you know. She's 11, <laughs> and I'm reading the book to her. And she's like, do you reckon they're going to get it on? I'm like, stop it. That's far too advanced. <laughs> Which is one of the, the central tensions of the book. Yeah, it is. And just for a little bit of background, we have a 17-year-old a, um, a boy living in a small coastal town. It's contemporary. So the, while the trilogy was dystopian, this is contemporary. And uh, an exchange student from the Netherlands, a girl named Fenner, comes into the town and has a huge influence on this boy, Hess, um, through, this, through the story. So, so maybe a place to start with discussing the book is when I... I was writing down questions I wanted to ask you and I Google earthed Anglesey and two things immediately became apparent. One right. is that Anglesey and Port Ferry are in fact on exactly the same latitude. Right. It's something I never realised. Yeah, no, I yeah. wouldn't have picked that out. And, and yet yeah. so different topographically. Mm. Um, but the other thing was that when you look at Anglesey on Google Earth, there, there's the curve of the coast, there's a little village tucked into the forest 
and there's this enormous scar behind the town, um, which is, of course, the coal mine and um, the power plant. Mm. So perhaps the place to start might be, can you take us through what was the real story of Anglesey and the coal mine and the power plant and then how it yep. related to what you've done? Yeah, sure. Um, so Alcoa had uh, an open-cut coal mine in Anglesey and a power station, and it was uh, built in the 1960s to feed power to their smelter at Port at um, Point Henry in Geelong. So in, I think, about 2014, the smelter closed down which meant that the power station and, and coal mine were a stranded asset, basically, for did the they, company. Sorry to interrupt, but did, did, did they also power the town? No. Okay. No, it was purely fed in. In actual fact, depends on how deeply you want to go into this, but as with all of these things, there was a sweetheart deal with the state government and they could actually buy power more cheaply from the grid than they could produce it themselves. So. The way they got around that was they fed the power to the power station but diverted it to the grid and sold it to the grid and bought it back more cheaply by the sweetheart deal with the government. So they were actually making money out of out of power, whole power um, set up for, for their Point Henry smelter. Anyway, the smelter closed and at that stage everyone in Anglesey thought, well, you know, surely the power station and the coal mine will close as well. But Alcoa then changed tack and said, no, we are just going to feed electricity to the grid from this. And this is a built in 1967, um, not well-maintained power station, burning very, very dirty brown coal, very high in sulphur and um, high in pollutants, therefore, when it was burnt um, to, to generate electricity, all of which we were living under because, you know, that, those, those emissions have to go somewhere. Uh, so eventually, though, Alcoa decided they weren't in the electricity business and they said, uh, we're going to put it on the open market. We're going to sell it. We're going to sell the power station and, uh, and coal mine as a going interest. And at that stage, a whole group of environmentalists in the town got together and said, well, this is our chance. This is our chance to shut this place down. Um, because if we, can, uh, if we can deter a buyer from taking this on, then Alcoa will most likely walk away. And uh, so what happened was that we launched a campaign. I've been involved in lots of campaigning over the years, but this was something entirely different. If you look, Mark, up, there are photographs of him being arrested in all sorts of places. <laughs> um, and uh, so what we did was we were led by a, a, a quite a high-profile lawyer from Melbourne who had a holiday house in Anglesey, had been going there for a long time, and he had particular ideas about campaigning. Most of us had been involved in local campaigns, which were stalls at the local market and signing petitions and going door to door and, you know, raffles and things like that and just trying to generate a bit of... He was um, a social media, a bit of a social media guru, and he convinced us that that's all well and good, run your cake stalls, but we've got to get to banks and shareholders. That's where the decisions will be made. So... Through social media, um, we went. We, we launched a campaign behind the scenes, basically, while while everything appeared to be the cake stalls and the you know the petitions and things like that. We're working feverishly behind the scenes to, um, firstly, if if a company was going to buy the power station and coal mine, they need to get finance from somewhere. So we went to every bank, and we got them to rule themselves out as a financer of the purchase of that coal mine and power station. Wow. And some of them, of course, in fact, 90% of them had no intention of 
of ever financing it, That's but we still key, got yeah. them. Yeah. So, but we still got them to sign and say. So we had this list of like all these banks that we built up. I think we had about thirty banks and superannuation funds who had who had said no. We want nothing to do with you know, with the Alcoa coal mine and power station. Uh, and they never intended to have anything to do with it. But we were able to then, in the local newspaper, we bought half-page ads saying, here are the organisations that have you know, distanced themselves from having anything to do with dirty coal mine in Anglesey. And we listed all of these banks and super funds and, um, and quite legitimately because they'd ruled themselves out. And we built a campaign in that way. And then shareholders started to make noise as well. Um, so um, it was like it, it wasn't all us. It was a it was a perfect storm of lots of other things happening. Climate change coming to the fore. This was 2015 that was all sort of erupting. So it was like this perfect storm, and Alcoa had an enormous amount of pressure on them from lots of different directions, principally from their shareholders, yeah. saying, "What are we doing? Why are we doing this?" Uh, and eventually they. They, number one, they couldn't find a buyer, and then number two, realised that they just had to shut it down. And so, so what about remediation? What happens to the site? They've well, they hold they have responsibility for it, which is what they were trying to avoid by selling it, right? Because they didn't want to have to do the remediation work, which is ongoing now, and this began in two thousand and fifteen. So six years later, it's a long, long term project because yeah. um, it's a huge open cut coal mine, about a kilometre and a half in length, and about probably half a kilometre in width, yep. massive hole in the ground. So what do you do with a massive hole in the ground? It's um, full of toxins. That's, yeah, it is. And basically they decide to um, take water from the aquifer and just let it gradually fill with water and make a lake out of it. So they had to, they had to um, cover all the batters, all the, um, all the coal faces, and they had to regenerate those and then allow it to fill with water, which is still happening now. So is that why on Google Earth it appears to be white? Is that because yeah. the coal faces are covered? Mm. Yep. Right. All the coal faces need to be covered. Because okay. the number, apart from anything else, they're an incredible fire risk. Right. Because this is right at the back of our town, and um, and with brown coal is incredibly volatile. It will self-combust. Like they will have, they would have fires that would just erupt in the coal face, and they'd have all these procedures in place to put them out. Yep. Um, so. It was it was incredibly volatile. It all needed to be covered as part of the remediation. So, how did Anglesey and the real story relate mm. to Shelbourne and the novel? Yeah, um, it's the novel. We have to turn the camera off. This. Yeah, <laughs> the novel is is a fictionalised account that takes some elements of that campaign, distances itself enough so that the company that I call Hadron in the novel can't necessarily be recognised as Alcoa. Um, and it's not really, um, and there are elements to the story that are entirely fictitious. But there is a lawyer from Melbourne. There is a lawyer from Melbourne, yes. Um, and uh, other than that, not a lot of. The, the, again, when you build characters in a novel, you sort of pull bits and pieces of them from everywhere. So um, yeah. there's very few people that you can actually identify. There is a surf shop owner in in Anglesey, um, who was very chuffed when he read the book. He, was that so, Bruce? That was Bruce, yeah. So <laughs> Bruce owns the surf shop in, in, in Anglesey. He hasn't hadn't read a fiction book in five hadn't read a book in five years. So I took it into him, signed it for him, gave it to him, and he read it. So that was a, that was great. <laughs> Looking busily for himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you should explain, I suppose, um, firstly, give us a bit of a synopsis of what happens in If Not Us. Yeah. And then if you could give us a little reading, that would be great. Sure. Okay, so um, 
if not us, it, it revolves around a 17-year-old boy who's, who's not remotely interested in, in the environment or the, you know, or the coal mine. He's a surfer. He's, he's obsessed with surfing. And his mum, though, is a single mother. Um, she's lost her husband and this boy, Hess, has lost his father um, when he went out to surf a huge surf break on a big day and completely disappeared off the face of the ocean. Um, so when, when Hess was 10 years old and he's now 17. So he's a boy who's been raised by a single mum. And Imogen is, is part of the environment group that's been battling for years to try and put pressure on Hadron um, about their coal mine and power stations. So, um, so Hess gradually gets drawn into this campaign. He, he begins by he's writing a, a, an essay, of course, for school about climate change. And then he starts Googling the mine. He Googles Hadron. And, and right at this time, too, a girl arrives in town, this 17-year-old girl from the Netherlands. Her name is Fenner. And Fenner brings this very European sensibility with her. Um, and she's... Um, we know that, we know that uh, a number of countries in Europe, most countries in Europe, are much more socially progressive than, than Australia in, in policy, particularly around climate change, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks. Um, so she brings that sensibility with her and, um, and coaxes Hess into this campaign. And eventually Hess uh, is chosen, or he, he's sort of, sort of railroaded into speaking at a, at a protest meeting as the voice of youth in, in Shelbourne. And, um, and the meeting erupts. It's just, it was one of the best scenes to write. It was so much fun to write this Great scene. Um, because there are meetings that I'd been part of. It was, it was almost portraying what had happened in particular meetings and things that people had said. Um, so that's the, that's the crux of it. Um, and the, the reading, um, I think, uh, the, other thing that, the other thing that Fenner brings is not that just that European sensibility about the environment, but um, there's, this, uh, there's this thing that, that Dutch people call Dutch directness. It's like they're just they're just there, and I was very lucky in that um, some friends of ours in in the Netherlands had two had daughters who had spent a gap year out in Australia. We got to know the the two girls quite well, um, Anna and Marika, and they were so rapt to be. I said, "Look, I want to put this Dutch character into this book, and I'm zooming with them. I'm getting you know, and they were they were really involved in the process of creating this character. So the character isn't." either one of them, but it's got yep. bits and pieces of both of them. And um, they were a fantastic sounding board to write, to create this character. Um, just for all of those things about, it's the, you know, it's the classic fish out of water. It's, she'd been accidentally dumped in this town. She wasn't meant to go there. She was meant to go somewhere else, but it fell through. And, um, and she was in the wrong household. And she was in the wrong household. Um, so it was, it was very difficult for her. And on top of that, she suffers from social anxiety. So I had to build that into her character as well. Do you want to do a little? Would you please? Okay, so, <laughs> so Hess works at the local surf shop. And um, uh, the night before, he's been out at the beach. He's come out of the water in the dark. And there's a girl there sitting on her own, entirely on her own. And this is, you know, a couple of kilometres out of town. He doesn't know what she's doing out there. She kind of brushes him off. Um, but she reappears in the surf shop the next day. So this is obviously Fenner. Hess didn't see the Dutch girl slip into the shop. She just seemed to materialise behind him. He turned and almost bumped into her. Hi, she said. Hi, Hess replied. He didn't know where to look. She was standing so close he could smell the shampoo in her still damp, in her still damp hair. 
She had startling blue eyes and a spray of freckles across her nose. I'm finished, she said, holding out her hand very formally. And you have a black eye. An accident in the surf, he said, dipping his head and shaking her hand. Her skin was soft against his, her fingers long. I'm Hess. Huss. Close enough, he said. She gazed around the shop, looking for something. Can I help you with anything? Hess asked. Behind her, Theo stuck his head through the door and winked at him. Why is it so cold here? She replied. She wore the same hoodie as last night with a pair of cut-off denim shorts, black tights and sneakers. She hugged her arms to her chest. Hess was confused. In here, you mean? Everywhere. I thought Australia was a warm place. Hess su suppressed a smile. It is in summer. I saw you surfing yesterday. Why were there no girls out there? Hess was having trouble keeping up. This girl was all over the place. She sounded way too direct, but he figured English wasn't her first language. Um, sometimes there are. Can you teach me to surf? She asked. Sure, he said, uh, but you'll need a wetsuit. The water's cooling down. So, she hesitated. They are expensive. Wetsuits? We don't sell second-hand ones, if that's what you mean. You'll want a winter suit, and they start at 300 bucks. Her eyes widened. 300? Yeah, I hope that sounds... That. <laughs> yep, he guessed this was way out of her price range. OK, maybe I'll come back another time. She turned towards the door. Wait, Hess said. He wanted to keep her talking, the halting way she spoke, the way her brow furrowed as though she was thinking carefully about the right words to use. It had somehow made his working day seem brighter. My mum's got an old wetsuit she doesn't wear much. I reckon, I reckon she lended it to you. Your mother is Imogen, the one and only. She's nice. She drove me home last night. She's everyone's guardian angel, my mum. Fenner looked confused. Never mind. She's got a wetsuit you can borrow. OK, good, she said, allowing herself a brief smile. Can we start today? Hess shook his head. I've got to work, he said, lifting his hand and vaguely pointing at the sales desk. He had no idea why he was like this, why he lost his nerve around girls, why his sense of humour deserted him. He could joke with his mates or with Theo all day long, but when he got into a conversation with a girl, it was like he was second-guessing everything he'd said. Uh, of course, she said. Tomorrow? Working again, sorry. He saw the little wave of disappointment across her face. But I finish at four on Sundays. OK, she said. That is good. Four o'clock at my place. Excellent, he said, realising immediately he never used that word. Tomorrow at four. You're staying with the Turners, aren't you? Yeah, she said and disappeared out the door. Hey, he called after. Have you got a surfboard? But she was gone. <laughs> um, you, I was interested in the way that you read that because in reading it to Undine, I, the first time Fenner turned up, I decided I was going to try a Dutch accent. <laughs> and then I realised yeah. how much dialogue you've given her. And then yeah. by the end of it, I was like, oh, there's paragraphs <laughs> of this stuff. And I'm making it up on yeah. the fly. Yeah. Um, you're better off And it is a particular accent mm -hmm. that, that <laughs> people have. Um, there's, a, there's a readings review of the book online which makes this point. It's a coming-of-age novel. It's just that nowadays that means reckoning with the climate crisis. And there's another reviewer who said the same thing. He said the two things are inescapably intertwined. Mm. And I hadn't thought about that. It's a really interesting idea that, you know, um, whatever it is, 10 years ago, Jasper Jones could come out as um, a coming-of-age novel. Mm. But really for that to happen now, you have to grapple with this giant existential problem. Yep. Um, were you really conscious of that, as, as, that they were two things intertwined? I was, yeah, definitely. Um, and the whole idea of, of basing it in the setting it in a small town was to bring the world into microcosm and when you're bringing the world into microcosm like that you can't ignore the elephant in the room which mm. is everything that these kids are going to have to deal with um, so and that's not the only thing now that we've, when you're writing for young adults um, 
Similarly, you can't write about relationships between young adults without mentioning consent um, and without that coming into the conversation as well. So in that way, the way in which we're writing books for, for younger people is changing enormously. Yeah. Um, but the, the, whole, um, the whole climate change thing, the book grew out of, out of two things. Uh, it grew out of, number one, that in so much of Australian literature that climate change is really only dealt with in a dystopian context or it mm. seems to be dealt with in a dystopian context. So it's all over. There's nothing we can do. You know, we've just got to adapt to this world. But here's a plucky yeah. kid. Yeah, yeah, but here's a plucky kid. That's right. Um, so I, and I've been guilty of that myself because the trilogy is dystopian and it deals with, you know, that um, the effects of climate change further down the track. And I, I don't think that gives kids much hope. I don't think it allows them to think positively about their future, and it may, in fact, actually make them fear their future more. Mm. So I was, I was very determined to write a novel that was contemporary, set here and now, and which, without preaching, at least points in a direction that says, hang on, there's still time. You can, there's still time to act here. Mm. Um, it's not all over, but if we, if we are going to act, we've all got to do it together. And the second thing that it came out of was the um, school strike for climate um, rallies that were all around the world. This is the movement set off by Greta Thunberg. And now we know that is, that's millions of kids all around the world. And in 2019, there, was a series, there were a series of rallies, and there were huge ones in Sydney, in, in Melbourne, kids marching out of school and, and, and filling the streets. And I went to the one in Geelong. And I, because I've been an activist for a long time, I've been involved in a lot of rallies, and Geelong is a conservative town. It's hard to get people out on the streets in Geelong, and I knew that from my own experience. But this was massive. This was enormous, and kids and their parents, and, but it was all led, directed, run by the kids. It was almost shambolic, but it was beautiful in how <laughs> shambolic it was. And they made noise, and they were passionate, and they were on top of the issue. Um, so. Basically, I went home that day and started writing the book because I saw that that passion was there and it was something that could be pulled on and brought into... A, if you can bring that into a story, I, I just wondered what I could do with it. But again, to me, this, this is testament to your great skill with tapping into the teenage mind because it seems to me the first line of defence when you approach a kid with these issues is to roll their eyes. Mm. You know, oh, bloody hell, here he goes. Yeah. And you've managed to get not only well past that, but you've tapped into what the actual passion and enthusiasm mm. is. The, the key to that is story. Like, it, it's the story that's important. So it, it, this, as soon as you start writing a book about issues, you might as well forget about it mm. because it's going to drive the, the narrative in a way that's going to bore your readers or your reader is going to feel as though they're being preached to. And you know as readers, as soon as you feel as though you're being preached to, you're going to put the book aside. Um, whereas if you can embed that in the story, and this is, to me, this is a story about two kids. It's, about a, com it's a coming of age story um, about 17-year-old Hess and Fenner and their relationship. And within that story, in fact, there are two or three, in fact, there are three, four parallel narratives that are happening at the same time. And so you, you embedding those issues so that, um, so it's not me. As soon as they hear my voice, as soon as they hear the voice of the middle-aged white bloke, Forget it. Um, but if they can hear, if they hear the issue coming from an authentic 17-year-old voice, then they will listen to it. 
And so you've got to embed the issue in the characters and allow it to well up, bubble up, bubble up slowly. And when you're dealing with a, a problem like climate change or an issue like climate change, you know the facts are right out here. So how do you bring them in here and here and here to the point where you isolate them in one or two conversations and you get to the bare bones of the problem um, of the issue without losing them? Yeah. That's the and that's it. And if it's if it's Hess talking to Fenner, then they will read that conversation. And they're, they're almost taking in the issue by osmosis a lot of the time, I think. It's just happening. And they're reading a story. They're reading what I think is quite a beautiful story about these two kids. Um, but embedded in it is the larger issues that they are grappling with. It's also a factor, isn't it, in um, attention spans that the tightness mm. of the edit is incredibly important. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the things that we've done in this book that's not traditionally done in young adult novels is we've got quite strong adult characters in it. Um, and so that while the narrative is directed and run, you know, by the kids, we've got adults who are putting in, feeding in information as well. But it's being filtered through the, through the young adult, through the young adult. So um, you, you do need, there is a certain amount of information that you've got to get through. And in, like, I, I, I gave you like a five-minute outline of what that campaign was against Alcoa. Um, and I've got to bring that, those issues down into a couple of paragraphs mm, yeah. and still have the, not lose them on the way through. That's the tough bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, if we zero in on Hess for a moment, he's 17. Why is it useful in storytelling terms that he's a surfer? Ah... Uh, um, or is it just what you're familiar with? Is, is it? I think it's a combination of both. Yeah. Um, it gives you certain kudos um, for kids in schools picking up books off the shelf. Okay. Um, so um, if they were, um, I don't know, we're talking about this with somebody else just the other day, you know, if they were, I don't know, a bike rider or skating probably has a similar sort of kudos. Mm. Um, so even kids who are not surfers themselves are familiar enough with it to be able to be drawn into the descriptions of it. So it kind of, um, it's not, it puts him, takes him away from screens, which is important. I wanted um, to come to that, yeah. Yeah, um, something, and it, it portrays him as being a kid who's in touch with the outdoors and with the environment. And, yeah. um, and so that's really important in building his character. Because if you, if you wrote true characters for a lot of teenage kids, then you have a lot of time with them just sitting in front of a screen. And how or do you asleep. build that into a story? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's much, it makes much more, it, it provides for much more space in the narrative yep. if they're doing something active, getting out and doing things. But it's very noticeable, isn't it, that throughout the story, things move at a really hectic pace mm. and Hess is often keeping track of people and situations on his phone mm. um, and, and you do dialogue as text at times, but that never, as you say, it never sinks so far into becoming him just staring like a zombie at his screen. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right, and because there's there's it's not enough story potential in that yes. for me, yeah. um, and it is about plus the you know this this is a boy who's coming to terms with the loss of his father, uh, with his relationship with his mum, the new girl, um, and it's a lot of that's really and and he's a surfer. It's a lot very visceral lived experience mm. that I don't want to portray him doing through a screen because it's a that's that's a much more I don't know. Uh, it's a colder way of doing it, I yeah, think. Yeah. Um, one of the things I loved about this story was Hess's relationship with his mum. 
um, that there's there's a lot of respect there even when they're driving each other nuts. Mm. Um, and both of them in their differing ways are embarking on new romances. Mm. And um, it's an icky phrase, but I would describe this as sex positive. Yeah. They're, they're very open about yeah. all of that. Um, yeah. That was something yeah. he did really well, I thought. Yeah. Um, there's two things that are happening. So Hess is, is developing this relationship with Fenner and his, his mum, who's been single for seven years since her husband died, has met this guy who's part of the campaign, a guy just known as Bear. And she's got this fledgling relationship happening at the same time. So apart from anything else, it gives Hess the chance to take the piss out of her a little bit by, you know, um, making her feel a little bit awkward as well, asking asking <laughs> questions about, oh, you know, Bear seems like a nice bloke, doesn't he? You know, and, and the first night that Bear stays, you know, mm. he makes them feel really uncomfortable when he comes into the kitchen despite, <laughs> you know, lording it over them a little bit. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but she gets him back pretty well. She so. does, yeah. <laughs> So I, I like the idea of, like I said, you can't talk about relationships uh, between teenagers, I, I don't think, without consent being part of the conversation. And so it allows that to come into it. And But you can do it in a, in a kind of a, uh, in an easy sort of manner, I suppose, mm -hmm. without it being preachy. So, um, so uh, his mum has, has been talking for years to Hess about the two C's, contraception and consent, you know. And, and so when he's beginning this relationship with Fenner, you know, she brings this up again and says, yeah, you've been telling me that since before I even knew what they were, you know. Um, and so you, you raise those issues in that way. Yeah. But it's a really fine line because you can't be seen as an adult writer to be virtue signalling. Yeah. And because, you know, you can't have kids behaving in the way that you want them to behave that they wouldn't necessarily behave in reality. And that's really hard when you come to explaining a relationship between these kids because you want that consent discussion to be taking place, that conversation to be taking place, whether it is or not, in reality, might be a different thing. So what, what do we write about? Do we write about what we would like as adults to be happening or do we write about what most likely would be happening you know, so it's a it's a very fraught area, and you've got to be very careful about the way you write about it. I think, yeah, yeah, not to be telling them what to do. So, in the writing process, was that a thing that you you hit and you were happy with, or was it a thing you had to mm. continually reframe? Lots, lots of reframing around. Mm. Even again, publishers are very cognizant of all of this now. So, when you take your manuscript to the publisher, they are going to pick you up on those things. Right. So uh, I had a long back and forth with my editor um, and we talked about the Dutch directness. So Fenner actually initiates the relationship with Hess and at one stage, the first kiss that they have, she actually pulls him in behind a parked car and kisses him. Now, my editor said she wrote the notes, you know, on the side of the manuscript when it came, should there be something about consent here? Or at least and, about Dutch directness. Yeah, at least about Dutch directness. Um, and so this is where we began the discussion of, well, would there be or not? And I didn't think there would. And so in the end, we said no. Um, I said no. I don't think there would be. Um, but when they come to potentially sleeping together, um, then that discussion comes up then, conversation comes up then. But it's, a, it's such a, I mean, uh, you know, again, middle-aged white bloke, writing about this, it's, it's like dancing around, you know, <laughs> trying to figure out, not, not tread too heavily. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, the other thing about Hess that's really important is, uh, you alluded to this earlier, that he's a reluctant hero mm. and he, he gets drawn into this really heavy situation with mm. the town meeting. Mm. And there's a particular scene there where you describe his stage fright that I think actually brought on physical symptoms. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly tense. Yeah. Um, we, we had, during the campaign, that we the, the real campaign, we had public meetings where we would have all the people on the you know, on one side and the, the Alcoa people would turn up, unionists would turn up, they'd be there in their high-vis jackets. It would be a very almost intimidating presence in the room and you overblow that a little bit when you write it, when you fictionalise it. Um, but there's tension in the room. You can feel the tension in the room and uh, the speakers have to be very careful about the way that they present what they're going to say or they're held down or interrupted. And here's this 17-year-old kid thrown into this. And he is, he's been vomiting outside already because he's so nervous about it. He's not, not really a public speaker, never done it before. Um, he feels conflicted because he definitely wants to stand up and have his voice heard. Mm. But his voice has deserted him completely. He's so freaked out. At one point, he completely out. clams yeah, up. Yeah, he clams up. Um, <laughs> so standing at the microphone, just lost it, you know, yeah. complete yeah. stage fright. And... Um, and the room is sort of starting, people are starting to fidget and so oh, come on, get on with it. You oh, know? it's excruciating. So, yeah. It's like, it's a whole page of this. Yeah. It's like, oh, mate. <laughs> and, um, and of course, what happens is that he focuses on one person. He focuses on Fenner. So Fenner's at the back of the room um, and he focuses on her and she's mouthing words to him, you know, and he finds his voice. Um, and then the whole thing still erupts in a particular way, but you probably need to read the book. I know. <laughs> um, one of the things I loved about Fenner was um, her, th there's a delicate humour there that you were talking about mm. before, and her grappling with Australian colloquialisms. Mm. Yeah. And I can't for the life of me remember the one, but there's one that she keeps repeating that's... Yeah, yeah. So um, the, one of the first times I have a really long, detailed conversation, they're sitting out in the backyard and it's getting, getting quite cold. And, and Hess just casually says, come on, let's go inside. We'll freeze our tits off out here. And she just stops. She says, what? What? Oh, freeze the tits off. Yeah, look, you know. And then, so she takes it up then and she uses it three or four times yeah, yeah. in particular situations during the book, you know. Cause it, and that was, again, came from the two Dutch girls who, you know, they, they said there's so many little things that you don't realise. Like um, um, another one was, you know, the shit hits a fan. And we all know what that means. And you, you know, it's a preposterous idea. Yeah, it's a pre yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so there are those little Australianisms that that, mm. that we use and that we're very, very aware of. But she kind of struggled with, and but she then took up and used with gusto. Yeah, yeah. And and the discussion of her mental health. One of the things that it seems to me it does in storytelling terms is that she's a kind of unreliable presence. That she's there and she's emotionally central to something that's happening, and she's so important to Hess. And then you start to get used to this pattern as you read the book mm. that at any given moment, she might just take flight. Mm. Um, yeah. And she does at, at several crucial mm. points in the story. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, again, when, when, when you're writing about mental health issues, um, it is, uh, it's one person's experience of mental health. You know? mm. So say if you've, if you've met one person who suffers from anxiety, you've met one person who suffers from anxiety. It, it will... It will you know, it'll come to the fore in so many different ways in different people. So, um, 
but she, yeah, she, she is. And what that does is it adds this incredible tension to this relationship. Here's this mm. boy who's wanting to get to know this girl and he can't figure her out, you know, cannot figure her out. She's really warm and friendly one day when she's having a good day and then she totally ignores him the next day in the supermarket, runs away from him and he, he's, he's kind of lost. Um, and it's not until she opens up to him and explains what it feels like, which was very intentional for her to do that, um, and and just she's just and what it is is I, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit dubious about about uh, you know I, I didn't want to write a book about a, about a character with anxiety I didn't want to write the book about it what I wanted to do was to normalise that behaviour mm. and to make it clear that so many people you know we use the word suffer suffer from anxiety but they have anxiety and they live with anxiety and this is the way that they deal with it and as much as anything else. The important part of that is the way in which Hess figures out how to work with her, yeah. um, and he tries. He begins to try. He begins to read her, um, and so before a pivotal scene, he he kind of he in his own head is thinking, um, I wonder how she is tonight. You know, she, she seems to be okay. She seems to be coping okay. Um, so it's a, it just what it does is adds adds depth to the character. And it makes that relationship so much more fraught and difficult yeah, for the yeah, boy, does. which I really enjoyed doing. Yeah. That was but, but also, as a matter of ordinary circumstances, she's on the other side of the world on this exchange mm. year that has gone bung mm. in a variety of ways. And she's also fallen into this, this heavy situation in the town. Um, there's a couple of nasty males mm. paying attention to her. Mm. So there's a fair bit stacked up against her, as well as what's going on in her own mind. Yeah, there is. Um, so there's a there's a basically a town bully who's this sort of um, uh, pretty boy surfer basically, but he's a nasty piece of work. Mm. Um, and he's actually, he's, I actually use Jago Motors here. Yeah, like, yeah. Yes. So yeah. I only saw that this morning. Yeah. yeah. So his name is Jago, um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, which I think might be Dutch. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Lots um, of Dutch here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she's dealing with that. He's giving her unwanted attention, um, which which culminates in a you know sort of the the climax of the story as well. So she's dealing with that, and um, again, very uncertain of herself and how she deals with that as well. So Hess, you know, again, one of the one of the great things that having a female editor does is. Um, my female editor schools me in feminist theory with every book that we write, and so she keeps exposing my blind spots. You know, and, and in the early drafts of this manuscript, Hess kept rescuing her, kept rescuing Fenner. You know, and she just, you know, my editor said, "Stop it! Stop having him rescue her all the time. She's a strong woman, you know, young girl on, on her own." Um, and so then, he, then her character, as I wrote it. Her character changed, right. um, and there was so much more strength in her. She didn't need rescuing. You know? um, so there's those sorts of things that are very much part of what well, you would know from the first time your editor gets your manuscript to the what you see on the bookshelf. It's unrecognisable. You know, unrecognisable. <laughs> I think they're going to get onto us at some stage. Like it's going to. My books again should be something like you know, if not us by Jane Pearson, <laughs> loosely based on the original idea by Mark Smith. <laughs> Um, I, I was thinking about uh, you know a couple of weeks ago when the, the nation was essentially being held to ransom mm. by a handful of nationals mm. whose um, 
sort of premise was, but what about the regional jobs? Mm. And that they kept coming back to this idea that regional jobs were in peril if we did anything mm. about fossil fuels. And there, there is that kind of wider idea that there's this thing, and, and this is all, I think, language directed at city people, that yeah. there's this thing called the regions, and in the regions, everyone wears high vis and they all work in the fossil fuel industry. Mm. In the book, there, there is, it's not a region, it, it's a town in which people are widely employed for Hadron, mm. and the direct result of Hess's actions is going to be that his mate's parents are going to lose their jobs. Mm. So it seems to me that you've shrunk that whole discussion right into a few streets. Yeah, yeah. Um, which makes it so much more powerful, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It, it, and it's that world in microcosm again. And it is things like, um, you know, the, the company pours money into the footy club, the netball yeah. club, the men's shed, the, you know, so that they become reliant. And, and the town has just become used to seeing the sign, you know, the Hadron sign, orange and white sign. It's at the surf club. It's on all the new equipment. It's on the footy jumpers. It's, um, and that's what it was like in Anglesey as well. Yeah. And that um, really rings true, yeah, I think, for any yeah. country. Yeah, and so um, and what it does is it generates for that company what we call social licence. It's their social licence to operate in the town. Um, and um, it's not until that, they, that you know, people like Hess and Imogen, or Imogen in particular, make the point that you know, when, uh, when the kids are pulling on the new footy jumpers and, and, you know, they've got the logo on, the parents aren't thinking about the air the kids are breathing. They're thinking about how awesome are those jumpers, you know? And that's the way, that's the way big corporations like that ingratiate themselves into those towns. So, and when you're writing the book, you've got to be very careful because it can't all be one side, mm. one-sided. So, mm. so on the school bus on the way into school, it's a half-an-hour trip into school, um, you have the kids who's... Parents are employed in the coal mine and power station, and you've got the kids whose parents are involved in the campaign. Um, and so you've got that dynamic happening as well. You've got arguments on the bus, you've got arguments in the classroom, um, you've got uh, arguments in the school assembly. Mm. So you're trying to bring that up. Um, and I, I try and focus on the parents of one of the boys, and they've come to uh, the Sudanese who have come on a refugee um, program and they've found work in this town and his father has found work driving one of the big trucks in the coal mine. Um, and so, and this is one of Hess's best mates. So he knows that, and you've got to expose that. Change hurts people. Mm. Um, and, 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 you know, it's going to, the change that we need to go through in the next, in the next 10 years is going to hurt people. Um, so we've got to, but we've got to be able to carry them with us, and to, I, you know, I don't buy that that urban regional divide that we've tried, that was mentioned, was portrayed the last couple of weeks. Um, in my in my experience, um, some of the people who are doing the best and most work on climate change are farmers, the rural people, um, because they're living it, they're living it every day, and they have an imperative to act um, when, in a lot of cases, city people don't. Um, the other thing. That really rang true for me was there, there's a character in there somewhere who is confronted with the question, "Are you a local?" And his answer is, <laughs> "I've been coming here on weekends for 30 years," <laughs> and and, and yeah. that has yeah. popped up here yeah. in a couple of contexts. Yeah. One is yeah. with with COVID restrictions, obviously, that yeah. people get quizzed about, "What are you mm. doing in town?" Mm. And they say, "Oh, my grandpa lives here. <laughs> uh, oh, we've been coming here for 30 years." Yeah. Um, but also, I was doing some work recently about house prices in the town and. 
there are people who have literally been coming here for 30 years mm. and who feel extremely invested in the place, mm. and rightly so, yeah. um, that, that being a local can actually mean a whole lot of shades of different things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm a blow-in of, of one kind. There are people who are mm. he- have been here for five generations. Mm. And, and where the dividing lines are between a local and a visitor are pretty permeable, I think. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. with that little line, you really nailed that. Yeah. This guy yeah. sort of exploding. Yeah. I've been coming here for 30 years. Yeah. Um, it happened in the public meetings. So um, this guy was one of the key speakers at the public meeting. And he's a lawyer from Melbourne, but he had said been coming here for a long time. And he made the point that... Um, that everybody has a voice in the town, regardless of how long yeah. they've been here. Um, and not everyone agreed with that, obviously. Mm. 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 Um, now, I'm conscious that yeah. time's getting away from yeah. us. There was one last thing I wanted to ask you mm. before I throw to yeah. the audience. But, um, and that is that you've written a novel about young people and climate change. Yeah. And it, it occurs to me that that's a little bit like taking the kids for a spin in a horse and carriage. Mm. You're using a 250-year-old medium to tell a really, really urgent contemporary story to young people. Mm. Now, is, is that a hopeless disjuncture or does that work? I, I, think, I think it works because of story, because it's embedded in story. And kids, regardless of whether they access it on screens or on, you know, in books or... They're still, they're still drawn to story. I find that they're still drawn to story. So are they not thinking of this thing as a novel? Is that what you mean? I think that they... Uh, no, I definitely think they're thinking of it as a novel. And, uh, and you are right. But one, one thing that I am aware that's happened, in, especially in the last 18 months, is that we've all been living our lives in front of screens. Uh, and kids, in particular, have been living even more of their lives in front of screens. Mm. And... Um, during the time during COVID, though, the schools that I you know I have a lot of I have a lot of contact with librarians because they push my books and librarians and teachers, um, and the borrowing rates from school libraries have gone up during COVID, even though the kids aren't at school, but the borrowing rates have gone up. So what they were looking for, hopefully, you know, maybe this might just be an author who's <laughs> thinking this. Hopefully, what they were looking for was some story that wasn't on a screen something that they could actually physically hold in their hands um, and carry with them that, that carried story. And, and like you say, it's a novel about climate change. It's a novel about two kids. And, and the climate change issue comes up through those two kids. Um, so I hope that it's not taking them for a ride in a horse and buggy. <laughs> um, I, think, I think it's more contemporary than that. I think that... Uh, it, it, it is. I'm not trying to underestimate the the problem of of literacy in Australia, um, because I think we do have a massive problem with it in getting kids, keeping kids reading. But unless we continue to tell good stories that engage them and have relevance to the world that they're living in, we're only going to make that worse. Does it mean also that um, you know, aside from the obvious personal benefits, that you'd like to see this put on the screen at some point? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, I had the opportunity to pitch it at the Gold Coast Film Festival earlier this year um, where we got to talk to a dozen different producers um, and nothing came of it, but who knows? It's out there and they're looking at it. But uh, and it's one thing that I often get questions about. Would you like to see a movie of your books? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I don't <laughs> have the $5 million or so that is needed just to get the thing you know, up and running. Mm. So I would like to, yeah. <laughs> Anyone has any contacts? 
Um, now, I should throw over to you guys. Does anyone like to ask Mark a question about the book? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. Um, but I, I also think that every writer that writes the book takes a risk, takes enormous risks. Um, and you do put your neck out there. Um, I, get, I get really heavily criticised um, for... I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for boys' literacy, um, but no-one wants to hear about that at the moment because it's not the zeitgeist. Um, so I have very prominent... Um, you know, male protagonists in my book. I'd like to see a lot more male protagonists in young adult stuff, but um, but I also have very strong female characters in there as well, and I think that's a reflection of reality. Um, and kids, kids want to, they want two things. They want to see a reflection of themselves in the books that they read, but I think they also want to be challenged at times to think a little differently. Um, and you can do that without being overly didactic, without being overly preachy, I think, that's that's the you know I, I I haven't written I haven't I've only written short stories in a, in the adult um, sort of sphere but I think young adult audience is one of the hardest to write for mm. and to hit the spot with um, of all the genres. I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, Leon. Um, I'm just reading the book by. <laughs> <laughs> Not very well. Um, uh, I tend to I tend to write early in the morning. Um, so it, the best thing that any writer ever has is a deadline, um, mm. I think, mm. because it forces you. So wh when I'm in a, you know, when I'm uh, in a writing phase, then I'll get up in the morning at six thirty, seven o'clock. I'll write for two and a half hours, put a thousand words in the bank, and that's my aim: a thousand words in the bank a day. Um, and then I've got the rest of the day to do what I want to do, um, and then come back to that thousand words or fifteen hundred words the next morning have a quick read of where I, where I was and pick up and don't go back, don't go back and, you know, and second guess yourself, just keep, keep going, keep moving forward. Um, so uh, it's kind of, I, I keep saying I'm not a disciplined writer, but I've written four books in five years, so I guess that probably says something else. <laughs> yeah, um, you're right, he's lost his father and... He does actually have role models. Um, so the, the guy who owns the surf shop, Theo, has taken him under his wing. And in a very, um, uh, I suppose, in an arm's length way, um, but develops this fantastic quite relationship. Rough, yeah, quite great relationship with this boy, uh, which is, as often happens in that sort of situation, is a kind of a taking the piss kind of relationship, you know, but there's something very genuine in it as well. Um, on top of that, there's his mum's new boyfriend who shows an interest in him as well. There's the, the other surfers in the water and there's a particular scene um, that I write where um, he goes back out and surfs the break on a huge day at the break where his dad was his dad died. But I felt um, like that. There was, there was a sense throughout the book that he was trying to feel his way into who his father was mm. and that yeah. that scene of him going and surfing that wave was kind of the culmination of that yeah. exploring. So what he did was he'd never actually been on, on a very, very calm, still day. He took a paddleboard out and he went over to the reef, paddled right out to the reef and sat there. And he dived down and touched the reef and he, he always wanted to know whether he would feel something of his father out there. 
Um, and he, once he resurfaces again, he comes to the understanding that, no, I'm not going to understand anything about this until I'm out here on the same sort of day my dad was. And that sort of leads him to surfing it on this huge day as well. Um, but he surfs it with a, another guy who just rocks up to the beach, who's been a peripheral character. Um, and there's a couple of things that happen between those two again. Like they're paddling out and he's horrified by this. He's, he's, it's so much bigger and, and, and worse than what he thought it was going to be. And he's the guy who's older guy who's paddled out with him take, takes him into the channel and he says something like, you know, you know, the first time I came out here, I didn't get a wave. I made it look as though I was going for them, but I wasn't really. Um, so, and he said, so in other words, head in if you like, no judgment, you know, and, but he, what he chooses to do is something quite different. So there's that kind of a relationship between he and the older person, the older guy again, which helps build that character that allows him to stand up. Um, yeah. So in particular, Theo, the, the, um, the surf shop owner, is very supportive of him doing the actual meeting, even though he's terrified of doing it. Absolutely terrified. Um, anybody else? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, it is phenomenal, the questions that you, that you get. Um, they are a lot more attentive readers, I think, than what you give them credit for a lot of the time. Um, and for, for my trilogy, uh, they, you know, they seize on things that you you know, probably didn't necessarily emphasise yourself. Um, the role of the dog as a character, you know, in the story, um, things like that. It's things that they can associate with their own lives. Um, and, and you automatically know when a kid asks a question whether they're a dog person or not um, because they, you know, they've attached themselves to Rowdy, the dog in the, in the trilogy. And I, I think it will be, it will be similar with the, with the new one as well. It's slightly, slightly older age group that it's, that it's aimed at. Um, but these will be kids who've taken part in those climate strikes, who are out on the streets. Um, and they haven't seen that, as far as I know, they haven't seen that reflected in the books that they read yet. So it's kind of right in the right spot at the right time. So it'll be interesting to see how close to, you know, finger on the pulse they think it is. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, now, I better wrap things up just there, but Mark will be signing books. So if you've got any other questions, do hit him yeah. up. Um, Dean's got the bar open. Um, so you can go in that direction as well with yeah. your signed book. Yeah. And um, otherwise, thanks very much yeah. for coming. And Mark, thanks heaps for talking to us. Pleasure. It's been fascinating. Can I just say too, and I know this is, this is probably the first event that we've had um, since Jock won the um, <laughs> Historical Fiction Prize. So, <laughs> and, um, and it's very generous, very generously said he's shouting the bar as well. So... <laughs> um, <laughs> There are probably no drinkers here. Jock. Oh. <laughs> Thank you so much. So, oh, yeah. Great. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Thank you.